Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the Backport Stories podcast with Chuck Stead. We'll begin this new podcast with Chuck reading a chapter from his book each week, followed by a chat with friends of the author that will reveal some of the stories behind the stories and some of the thoughts that Chuck had while writing the chapter. We'll be publishing a new story each week, available after 9 a.m. each Friday morning. We hope you'll enjoy what you hear. We hope you'll subscribe and click like, and please share these episodes with family and friends. Thanks for listening, and here now is Chuck Stead. Hi, this is Chuck Stead, and as some of you know, I've been doing a a daily three-minute story ever since COVID started, and well, that's, that's the short form, and there's been some talk about maybe taking this to a podcast, so this is a reading of the first story in my book, Back Porch Stories, and it's a longer form of some of the same characters and uh, situations. And this first story is called Mostly Head. I was born ugly. I was mostly head. The rest of my body kind of dangled off the bottom of my head. They thought I wouldn't last long. The doctors looked at me and decided I belonged in an oxygen tent. They didn't want me to breathe the same air they were breathing. So my first few days of life were inside a clear plastic tent, sort of like camping out. My dad watched me inside my tent. He hadn't been there when I was born. He'd been fishing up on Cranberry Lake. It was the middle of the night, and he sat in a wooden rowboat about 20 feet offshore with two lines out for catfish. Ordinarily, he sat on the bank when he went for catfish, but there were too many mosquitoes along the shore. The rowboat belonged to an old friend of his who let him use it any time. This was, in fact, the first time he used it. It brought him good luck. He'd already caught a fine string of catfish by the time I was born. A man came running along the shore and called out into the night. He knew where my father was because he could see the glow of Dad's pipe. You could always find Walt in the dark because he smoked a pipe. The man yelled from the shore, Walt, your wife just had a baby boy. And then he yelled in case Walt didn't get the whole picture. You got a son, Walt. And a few hours later, Walt stared down at me in my oxygen tent. I looked like a pumpkin. My mom, Tessie, was none too happy about doing all the work in the hospital while he was off fishing. She had named me. She named me after my dad, whose name was Walter Garrison Stead. When he went to see her in the hospital room, he told her he didn't want me to have his name. Why? Well, to begin with, it's my name. It works well enough for me, but it might not work so well for him. That's ridiculous. Well, I want him to be called Chuck. Charles? Nope, just Chuck. But Charles is Chuck. He looked out the window. It was three o'clock in the morning. He smelled like catfish and pipe tobacco. His wife just gave birth to their fourth child, only boy, who had a melon head, and she named it after him. He took out his pipe, but before he could light it, a nurse came into the room and told him it wasn't allowed. He looked at Tessie. Okay, his given name is Walter Garrison, but he's really Chuck. Why Chuck? This was not easy for him. He was not a talker. Explanations were short when they came at all. Well, when I was a boy, there was a man in the village whose name was Walter, but everyone called him Chuck. 
And this man was important to you? Hers was more an accusation than a question. He shook his head. Forget it. Forget it. His name is Walter. Walt said nothing in return. He sat in the hospital chair, repacked his pipe, and I've been called Chuck ever since. The next day they let Tessie go home. I was kept at the hospital in my tent. Soon the doctors told my folks that I was probably not going to live very long. They thought I might not make it to the end of the week. So Tessie went to the church and prayed for me. And many of her relatives, who were good at praying, they did the same. Walt's family wasn't big on church going. They were a private country people who kept their prayers to themselves. After I lived through one week in the tent, the doctors warned my folks that I might not make it through another week. My grandmother, Walt's mom, worried that I was spending too much time close to death. She believed that if I survived, I would be troubled, which was her way of saying I might be odd. She worried that I, having been visited by the angel of death in my tent, might grow up seeing ghosts. This drove Tessie to church with a vengeance. She would not have such beliefs in her son's life. Now, Grandpop's dead. He, he didn't care for all the attention I was getting. I was bringing trouble to the family. He had Walt drive him down to the hospital so he could take a look for himself. They brought him into the place where the oxygen tent was to see the big-headed baby. He said to Walt, Well, leastwise, you don't look much like our side of the family. The nurses told him that I kept alternating between recovery and failure. He bent down and stared at me. After a few moments, I turned my head toward him. He said, Make up your mind! The next day, I got better. During my first year or two, I remained mostly head. I didn't go out much. My mom would put me in the middle of the living room rag rug, and I'd lay there anchored to my head. For the longest while, I couldn't even lift it. Mom fed me a lot of vitamins, a lot of baby food, a lot of mashed potatoes, and pretty soon I started to fatten up beneath my head. I went from being a big-headed skinny baby to a big-headed fat one. Still, I could not get around much. I used to spend most of my time staring at the ceiling or at the floor, depending on which way my head was pointed. Ten o'clock every morning, my grandfather came over for a visit. Pop's dead, that's what they called him. He came into the living room and he sat in the upholstered easy chair and I dragged my head over to him. It usually took a while for me to get there. When I reached him, I climbed up his baggy legs. He felt all bony and thick beneath the flannel trousers. In the left pocket of his checkered shirt, there was always a chocolate bar. And as we ate it, he told me stories. The first story he told me about was his heebie-jeebie hand. You see, the two middle fingers of his right hand were missing. There was even a little tip to the pinky that was missing. But it was the spaces where the two fingers were, that was what was noticeable. In the beginning, he used to play a game with me. He would walk into the house and pull his hand out of his pocket and say, Chucky, well, what have you done with my fingers? And I would shrug my round shoulders. I would shake my big head. Well, look for them, damn it. So I would get down and crawl over to the couch and reach under, hoping I didn't find a couple of wiggling fingers there. Eventually, I tried molding him two fingers from some yellow Play-Doh, but they didn't match the color of his real ones. And when he lifted his hand, the Play-Doh fingers just stayed behind. Another game we played was a form of tag. 
If he tagged me with the heebie-jeebie hand, then I was it, and I had to curl my own fingers, the middle ones, and try to tag him in the same way. As I got older and learned to walk, we played this game throughout the whole house. When you tag somebody, you shouted, heebie, heebie-jeebie. It was a noisy game. Tessie didn't care much for this, or for the nature of the stories he told me. She'd say to him, Those are not stories for a little boy's ears. Well, they're the only ones I got, woman. Tessie at the time was trying to make a good impression on the ladies of the fire hall auxiliary. My dad, Walt, was a fireman all his life. He was born in the fire hall. Tessie had a love-hate relationship with the fire hall. I mean, she loved to watch fires. She would follow the fire engine and watch the dramatic, unpredictable event unfold. But she hated the amount of time he spent socializing with other firemen. Although she had no desire to join the ladies' auxiliary, she would occasionally invite a few choice members over for a tea. It was one of those teas that Popstead and I crashed. She'd been busy all morning in the little kitchen at the back of the house. Ours was a two-family, side-by-side factory home in the village, one of the earliest built. There were windows along the west wall, but none on the east wall. That was the wall that divided us from my Uncle Inky and my Aunt Dot's place. Tessie did her best to attire the kitchen in a fashion after which she had admired from a picture in Ladies' Home Journal. That's a magazine she read. Her burgundy yellow rolled linoleum floor was okay, not a block tile floor like she wanted, but at least it wasn't wood. It wasn't old-fashioned. She polished her Toastmaster and General Electric cake mixer, and for the tea, she covered the pink Formica table with a linen cloth embroidered along the edges. Although she'd been cooking up some Betty Crocker coffee cake, the room was strong with a thick coat of Windex and Lemon Pledge, and even the tea set, remnants from her wedding collection, had been pledged, leaving a faint wisp of lemon scent to the drinks. The last thing she needed was Popstead and me shouting heebie-jeebie at each other, so she banished us to the backyard. It was there in the backyard that I first discovered Walt's fish heads. Popstead walked me over to the garage and introduced me to the fish heads, some half-dozen large and small-mouthed bass heads, which had been cut off the fish that Walt caught and nailed to the side of the garage. When I first saw them, I thought they were animals poking their heads through holes in the garage wall. They were dried out, smiling yellow heads, and they were crisp and brittle to the touch. Although Walt caught a lot of fish in the mountain lakes, he never managed to get more than five or six heads nailed up before Keith Jenkins took aim at them with his slingshot from the next yard. Crispy bits like dinosaur fossils were strewn on the ground below the heads. Popstead ignored the broken ones and made conversation with the grinning heads that were still intact. There was always one that would forget who I was, and the old man would scold him. What's wrong with you? He's the same boy you met yesterday. After the heads, we chased each other around the little yard until I charged across the back porch and into the kitchen, into Tessie's tea, which was in high gear. Old Pop followed me in, shouting, Heebie, heebie, and in the confusion I dove under the table, which was something like a tent with its cover. And under there I was surrounded by three sets of nylon-wrapped legs, all crossed and all swinging high-heeled pointed shoes. I could hear old Pop. He was talking about heebie-jeebie, and Tessie's voice was getting high and tight. Now, Pop, now, Pop, don't now pop me, woman! The auxiliary ladies kept swinging their legs, their crossed legs, and my big head was an easy target for those shoes. 
I dropped to the floor, but I lost a lump of chocolate that was in my mouth. It landed along the wall. When I retrieved it, there was a good deal of floor fuzz all stuck to it. My tongue couldn't find a way around the fuzz. So I dropped the gooey mess into the back of a red-leathered high-heel shoe that hung loose off of a woman's nylon leg. The moment I had done this, the woman put her leg down and shoved her heel back into the shoe. I heard a very satisfying slurp sound. When I crawled out from under, I watched this woman's face as she realized she had a visitor in the shoe. She excused herself. She went to the bathroom and returned quickly, holding her shoe out, and showed it to old Pop. He looked at it. He said, What's that? Chocolate in your shoe? Damn foolish place for you to keep chocolate, woman. The heebie-jeebie hand became a kind of greeting. Whenever I saw him coming down the street to our house, he'd wave the hand with the missing fingers and call out, Heebie! And I'd wave my hand, holding my two middle fingers down, and I'd shout back, Jeebie! He believed that his right arm, which had the heebie-jeebie hand at the end of it, was cursed. He didn't know how it became cursed, but he knew when it started. It was a story he liked to tell in the wintertime, when it was cold and the village was frozen in with a fresh blanket of snow. Pounding into the house, he'd blow on his fingers to warm them up. I, I haven't seen cold like this since I was a boy. And that's how the story would begin. But we'll tell that one next time. Thanks a lot for listening. And now, please stay tuned for a chat about our first podcast with Chuck Stead and Joe Serino. That's a great beginning to a terrific book. I read Backport Stories a few years ago, and I have to say, it's more fun to listen to the person who wrote it read it than it is for me to read it, because you've got all their voices and the nuances of each different character, your mom and grandpa and one of the things I noticed from listening to your three-minute stories every day, come to really know Mal now, and of course I knew your father, you know, got him just perfect, and you kind of look like him, you know, <laughs> you do, you kind of look like him, but your grandfather is kind of like a mixture of your father and Mal, Yeah. and so one of the things that struck me right away from this first chapter was the way he looked down over you, and you turned and looked back up at him. And in that moment, he needed to say something. This was a guy who had a bigger heart than he wanted to let on. So he's looking at you, and it's getting to him that this precious little guy is having a tough time. And he says, make up your mind. <laughs> what was your relationship like with, with your grandpa? Well, well, first of all, uh, just let me put it in context. All the years that I told stories at the Nature Place camp, I'd always begin with this one, and then go out from there. And the reason for that is because I think it's really important to make the connection to eldership. My grandpa was, you know, he was the elder and, and the powerful presence. But the stories come down to us through eldership. We eventually become the elders. We inherit this. And, and so I always wanted to establish that through line because in a camp, in a summer camp, when I'd be with all these kids, they got all these elders. And I was encouraging them to solicit the stories of their elders and embody them, make them their own kind of a thing. So, so that, was, that was important to me. And that's kind of, that story is kind of pieces of it 
all came together while I was remembering the story of how I entered into the world and how my grandfather responded. But for me, the, the next, I think in the book, the next, uh, the, the first 12 stories, uh, he, he moves in and out of in, until he passes. And he was a real a significant head of the family, but, um, but he was also a, a person struggling because he was born in, I think, 1881. He was struggling with how the world had changed so much. Mm-hmm. And remember, at the time that I'm a little kid, the, the big thing they were talking about was the Red Scare and communists and is this real and, and the business of uh, McCarthyism and everyone's supposed to be fearing one another and watching out and fearing. Not, not unlike some of the stuff that's going on now, very similar. We go in cycles. But there's a wonderful little story I'll tell later uh, at some point about his reaction to uh, Orson Welles' invasion from, from Mars that was on the radio. Because while everyone panicked, his reaction was, well, yeah, okay, this is what happens. You know, his reaction was very grounded. And I think in, in my childhood, I was drawn to that. I was, you know, he was the character who was grounded. He was the, he was the magnet here. In many ways, he kind of understood that, and he played that role for the little kids. Yeah, he came over at 10 o'clock every morning. Yep. So he definitely decided, I'm going to connect with this little guy. We're gonna we're gonna have a relationship. I can see it in your stories when you talk about him. There's there's a lot of love there. That was a good kid to talk to because I didn't talk. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do anything. I was stuck to the head, you know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so so I was sort of the, I was a perpetual audience, yeah. you could say. Yeah. But it was important for me. It was like being a sponge, you know. Th- this guy just has this wealth of stuff, and uh, and I remember him telling a story once that obviously was off color and my mother was furious. She's in the kitchen and she's listening and she comes in and she said, you, you can't be telling those kinds of stories. You don't understand. You have to understand who you talk to. You can't be telling. And she started to read him the riot act. And his response was to, was to say to her, well, if I wait for him to be old enough to hear this, according to your rules, I'll be dead. <laughs> And, you know, what do you do with that kind of reasoning? Yeah, no, not a whole lot. That's the other thing I got a kick out of. Obviously, I know your mother very well and grew up together, you and I. I should introduce you. This is my cousin, Joe Serino, who you sometimes hear referenced in my daily stories. And uh, we're doing a little post-story reading chat. Chuck and I grew up together. We all, you know, I knew his mother very well. And I remember your mother as certainly the wittiest funniest of all of the Kylie sisters. She was quick. She was fun. And they loved it when she was there because she made everybody laugh. And I think your your sister Muffin inherited that from her. But she was from the Kylie family. They were a righteous Catholic family. And and they were, you know, mostly, well, mostly girls, really. Uh, so I, I always wondered, like, how she managed with the Stead family, which is a very different family, much more connected to hunting and things like that. The Kylies, that wasn't their thing. They didn't, in the beginning, it must have been a little challenging for her. Oh, very. Oh, oh, very. Uh, (laughs) Before I came along, I've heard stories of when she was raising the girls, you know, before we even lived in Hilburn, we lived in Slotesburg for a while. Apparently I didn't, but my sisters uh, did with my folks. And yeah, I I honestly think the Steads had a hard time accepting her too. Yeah, I think sure. it was hard both ways. Sure. Uh, like I said in the story, the Kylies were a prayerful family, and, and the Steads, that was a private thing. We don't even talk about it. And I experienced a lot of that edginess 
But by the time I came along, it was it was kind of built into the fabric. And I didn't always understand what is a, you know, I'd experience it and quite get it. But it would show up particularly in dialogue between Uncle Malstead and my mom. And uh, he needled her and she needled him. And they would go one for one. And uh, her, her needling was more sophisticated and a little bit more urbane. And, uh, and his needling was uh, sometimes outlandish and comical, but also a bit cutthroat. Like he referred to her as that girl, from, that girl, the Flatlander, the girl from the Flatlands, because Jersey was always the Flatlands. Uh-huh. Uh, Jersey is not the Flatlands, but in his mind, Jersey was the Flatlands. Compared and, to New York. Compared to New York. Yeah, we, right. New York's got the real mountains. New Jersey's mountains, ah, that's all nonsense. They're hills. <laughs> New Jersey has hills. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and he, would, he would say things to her like, um, if she had a, a fender bender, he would say, well, Walt, you understand what's wrong with her as a driver. She got her license out of a Cracker Jack box. Jesus. And, and, and he would needle Walt. But it rolled off Walt like, you know, right off his back. He, he didn't yeah. care. Walt could handle Mal. But Mal could get under Tessie's skin. And she was alone up there in Hilburn. You know, she never girls around her. She didn't have the Kylie clan around her. But, um, but she, had their, she had strength. She had stamina. And... Uh, and, and the other thing that she did, it comes out in some of the stories, uh, she was sophisticated enough that she, she dressed in styles that the Stead women hadn't caught up to yet. And so they admired her, and they looked at her as, a, as the person who was embodying these new styles. Like, they would shop at May Moons and Suffren, but Tessie would go down to Ramsey Circle. To, to stores that had a slightly more current styles. And she literally modeled her dress style in the 50s after Lucille Ball. Yeah. And she literally would watch the show, not just because it was a funny and sophisticated comedy, but because of the way Lucy dressed. You know, and Lucy, if you think about it, she was always well-dressed, oh, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, uh, and the, the, the Stead women, you know, they admired that, but they also saw that as, you know... Tessie is who she thinks she is, kind of a thing, you know. Uh-huh. It was it was it was interesting to see yeah. that, and I don't know that Tessie minded them thinking that. That was also part of her 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 detachment while she's here. Yeah, and that while she's here is important. She would go down to Jersey every Thursday or Friday night. It changed, but she always referred to going to Norwood as going home, mm-hmm. and she always referred to Hilburn as Hilburn. Muffin was the first person I remember who pointed out, you never call this place home. This is that place called Hilburn. Yeah. When are you going to, when, when is this going to be home? You know, because Muffin and Tessie were similar in that respect yeah. and they could get at each, and their battles, their battles, especially around a supper table, were just pure entertainment to us. And they really were. You had two really smart women who could hold their own, yep. you know, and it was fascinating and you could learn, you know. I and mean, sometimes I they were in agreement and oh, they'd yeah. argue. Yeah, they right. were in complete agreement with each right. other, but they were arguing about how they agree. I mean, it was... Because I think they enjoyed the argument. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, they that, did. That they really of, did. You know, the other thing about Tess was, uh, you know, she was a working woman in, yep. a, in a time when that really wasn't often the case. You know, And you, she had her own money. I mean, the, my dad's money and, and Tessie's money were not joined. Oh, she had her own money. Interesting. And... and that was a part of her governorship. And like the stories I'm doing on the dailies right now, they're going to Mohegan Lake. And, and Walt and Tommy, Tommy Kiley, bought this old broken down trailer, which I adored. 
and it's in a swamp and it's miserable. But Tessie and Eleanor, Eleanor Kyler, Tommy's wife, they keep renting the bungalow, which is down the hill and it's mosquito free, you know. And and uh, that was Tessie, you know. She she would still do her own thing. Well, last question I I have for you: If Grandpa Stead were here today, what would you say to him now? Wow. Um, I think it's what he would probably say to me that that would be interesting. He'd probably correct my versions of the stories. <laughs> he'd probably tell me I, I got them all wrong. I mean, he'd enjoy it, but he'd probably say, oh, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he'd even tell me his fingers that were missing were on the left hand, even though they were on the right. I mean, uh-huh. he, would, he would probably correct it. He, um, t- I'm not, I don't want to give it away because it's in a story that yeah. we're going to do, but he knew when he was going. Yeah, you know he he clocked it. He predicted it, and uh, and I was honored because I was. He wanted to see. He told Walt, "Bring me four people," and I was the last one on the list, mm. and because uh, he wanted to see me, and uh, and he wanted to tell me that he was going, yeah, but that it was his choice. It was nobody else's, you know, mm. and it wasn't like your fault, you know, and and uh, and he also left me with believing that he'd always be there. Which upset Tessie because I kept talking to him yeah. long after he was gone. Well, you know? <laughs> and in his time, he had very close uh, relationships with different people and, and a child, too, who died young. And, uh, and he was there for that. And that was a part of you know, his understanding. But let me, before we go, let me ask you. You've heard the daily, the, the short-form stories. And obviously, I hope, you've, I hope I've done justice to Joe and Peg but you've heard me talk about them. How does that feel to you to have them drop into the narrative thread and, and partake? It's absolutely wonderful. When you speak about these people, you seem to remember their cadence, their vibe, the way that they said things, the vocabulary they used. Uh, seriously, and, and, and you bring them back. They're, for that moment, they're, they're alive again. I can see the color in my mother's eyes. Mm-hmm. I can hear her and see her smile, and I can hear my father's ebullient Italian guy effusive way, you know, where everything was attached to an explanation point <laughs> that he ever said. And, and, uh, and his, he was a very loving guy. He was the kind of a guy where, you know, you had, to, you had to really convince him that you were a bad guy because everybody he met was a good guy. And it's a wonderful thing because I was saying to you a little bit earlier you seem to have a remarkable ability to access the data files in your memory. I think we all have these data files because when you start talking about it, I remember I remember what you're saying. I remember them. I remember that day or that time, but not until you talk about it. Huh. And so it brings it all back. And for a few moments, uh, a few moments, I have my mother and my father back with me. And so I'm very appreciative means a lot to me. Thank you. It's, it's good stuff. That's, yeah. that's, that's good stuff. You've been listening to Backport Stories with Chuck Stett. The song that you hear at the beginning and the end of the episode is Flyer's Rag, composed by Mr. Scott Lewis. Our producer is Joe Serino, and our cover photography is done by Karen Serino. We'll be back with another episode each Friday morning at 9 a.m., so... Please subscribe, click the like button, share with family and friends, and join us each week for another Backport Story.